Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, Brexit Britain. How are you? Welcome back to Romaniac on the week that a final say second referendum seemed to come closer and closer. What did Nigel Farage really think he'd gain from putting it on the table? Why is Boris Johnson wobbling? And why won't Corbyn get with the final say programme? Boris Johnson wobbling. <laughs> we'll be discussing this in detail later in the show, but first let's say hello to our regular panel of self-consumed malcontents. Ian Dunt is the editor of politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. How are hello. you? Very well. Uh, Naomi Smith is former chair of the Social Liberal Forum and ex-Lib Dem parliamentary candidate. Hi, Naomi. Welcome back. Hello. And Peter Collins is our resident business expert and social media denier. Hello, Peter. <laughs> Hello, still here and still moaning. <laughs> the internet misses you. Did we all enjoy this week's two bulletins from the Brexit fringe? First, there was the heartbreaking story of Henry Bolton and his racist alleged music journalist girlfriend, Joe Marnie. <laughs> <laughs> so a racist, a racist then, alleged music <laughs> journalist. <laughs> the other way around. She's clearly a racist, but claims also to be a music journalist. <laughs> Then uh, a comedy sketch troupe calling themselves the White Pendragons trying to pull off a citizen's arrest of Sadiq Khan because of Magna Carta. Did she die in vain? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, Bolton left his wife for Joe Marnie. Now he's split up for Marnie as well. Can we think of any other rash decisions to leave something, perhaps made in a moment of high emotion, which turn out to be a bad idea and give rise to terrible regret? <laughs> he spent the last three months doing what he calls internal restructures. I've never heard it called that before. <laughs> <laughs> I'd actually, I didn't know that he was the UKIP leader. This seems terrible. <laughs> this is literally the first story about him, I think, since he became UKIP leader. I'm a bit, because I always, I get a bit, I, I get a bit uncomfortable when they start blaming people for the crimes of their partner, for the thoughts of their partner, because you sort of think, well, you know, I mean, you're entitled to go out with people with some very strange views, and our romantic lives do not necessarily follow the same logical structure as our sort of our professional lives. And then you sort of, you read the stuff that she said, and you sort of think... God almighty, there's no way that none of that seeped out in the conversation, you know. What kind of a judgment would you need to have as a human being to want to be in contact with someone like that? And then I just thought, I don't want to think about this anymore. And also, you, <laughs> UKIP are, you know, uh, they're not a, a progressive liberal party, exactly, that believes that mm. you shouldn't be judgmental about people and don't blame their partners <laughs> for things. It's a kind of traditional values partner party, so they deserve it, don't they? It's bizarre that he would just not have noticed... I mean, I think it's quite hard to accidentally date a racist. I imagine you can accidentally go on a first date with a racist. But you probably can't accidentally move in with a racist. I mean, he may. I think he probably noticed the fact she was a model. 
and that seemed to have been enough for no. his marriage. And what, yes, what, what first attracted him to the glamour model? <laughs> it is. No, it, it's a mystery. But uh, never. So I imagine that that's all that he saw, and, and his marriage and his conscience just took a backseat to that judgment. Nevertheless, he's got it. So he's, he he did get rid of her, sort of. He sort of did this. The romantic section of our relationship is now over, and we can move on. And I need to worry about the family and the we'll blah, just blah, march blah. around but, in but, jackboots but together. She, yeah. but, but, but I suspect she got rid of. We'll him. still be racist together. We just won't go for dinner. But but they will have both served. You know, the the the, the purpose came to a natural end mm-hmm. because somebody like her. I mean, let's face it, she probably was not physically attracted to him. It was the power, the fact that he was leader of Egypt. So once his career is on the skids because of her naughty texts and horrible racist comments you know i think he no longer served her in much the same way as she certainly was no longer was a very generous yeah. equation of power with leadership of uk true at this stage <laughs> in the game but i suppose if you're a t- 24 year old racist the pinnacle of power probably is the leader of uk <laughs> well either that or the knights of the pendragon or whoever <laughs> well the white pendragons trying to arrest Steve khan at the fabian society meeting which was very comical it was like a pitch for what if detectorists but racist <laughs> except they they brought an actual gallows with them and it was very hard to, to work out whether there was anything kind of dangerous simmering here or if they're just sort of great british wallies the way that they seem to have like I mean, proper crankishness. Now, I think when people talk about people being crankish, it, they, they're tending to go to certain wells. You're know, the anti-Semitism well and the, the invasion of the Muslims well. Mm. But this was kind of Magna Carta and the pernicious influence of the Fabians, you know, going back to the 1880s. <laughs> and it was like, this was real kind of like crate digging. <laughs> this is some, some real kind of deep cuts theories here. Have you seen the, um, have you seen the, uh, the video communique from the leader of the White Pendragons? Unfortunately not. I'd, 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 I'd hesitate to say watch it, but if you want to see a bloke <laughs> sat in a room with wallpaper peeling off the walls and a parrot somewhere squawking in the background... While he's trying to kind of convey the, uh, <laughs> that the white race is in danger, then you know it's, it's definitely one for the for the guidebooks. Yeah. There's an ITV bit of ITV footage where the journalist, I think it's ITV, very very generously actually ask these guys to try and elaborate on what their politics actually are. And it goes on for some time, and half it's, it's fucking bananas. But like halfway through, this, one, of the, one of the people there, this woman sort of goes, can I just say something? And then she just recites the Magna Carta for about two minutes. She's like, I mean, it's, it's like sort a party of trick. Yeah, I, like as a feat of memory, there is, yeah. it's sort of impressive, but you haven't actually said anything. Eh? You just recited the Magna Carta for two minutes. The most extraordinarily weird cul-de-sac of extremism that they found themselves in. But nevertheless, uh, you know, it's there. And I suppose harks back to some kind of romantic notion of, you know, the Dark Age British Englishman's liberties sort of stuff, which I... I guess is there. It was certainly a more eccentric and distracting form of extremism to the sort of anti-Muslim stuff that we usually get. But, you know, there's also, why does Sidi Khan constantly have to put up with this shit? Oh, because they're racist. <laughs> yeah, OK. Mm. Just, <laughs> so, just be clear on that <laughs> one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're just eccentric racists. Is Magna Carta woman going to go out with Henry Bolton? That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a good idea. Can, can you imagine that? Recite the Magna Carta to me again. Spank me with a copy of it. <laughs> That's enough of that. We'll get to the important stuff after this message from Peter. Yes, we're renting a transit van, sticking the flag of St George on it and filling it with cans of Strongbow because at long last we're doing a live show. 
The very first Romaniacs Live is happening on Thursday, the 22nd of February, downstairs at the Phoenix Pub near Oxford Circus in central London. So we're not exactly bursting out of our metropolitan bubble just yet. <laughs> anyway, put it in your diary. Our panel will be on stage during doing a slightly more wide-ranging version of your favourite podcast. We'll be taking a longer view of Britain's future in or out of Europe and what Remain can do to affect that future. There'll be questions from the audience too, plus a chance to mingle with the presenters afterwards. We'll even let you buy us a drink. We have no shame. If it works and if Ian doesn't stage dive into the crowd, we'll set up some dates outside London too. Tickets are limited and, as promised, Patreon backers get first dibs and discounts. We've sent out the links. You should have them by now. The tickets will go on general sale next week, but if you can't wait, you could always sign up to backers via Patreon right now. Just go to Romaniacs.com and follow the links. So that's Romaniacs Live, 22nd of February, Thursday at the Phoenix, Cavendish Square, off Oxford Street in London. For those about to remain, we salute you. (laughs) Okay, let's have a look at this week's Brexit news. First up, we're going to go back to a story we looked at late last year. The threat to jobs at Vauxhall's car plant Ellesmere Port and how much of the problem is down to Brexit. The company, now owned by PSA, the French manufacturers of Peugeot and Citroën, announced 400 job losses in October and a further 250 this month. It's hard to avoid the conclusion that, like many companies, PSA are getting ready for a post-Brexit world where Britain is not a great place to manufacture. And yet, it's happening against a background of the economy doing rather better than expected in some respects. Now, Peter, you're always saying we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't be sort of delighting in bad news of the economy and feeling sad about the good news. So, Indeed. Yeah. So what, what's happening at the moment? Well, uh, looking at Vauxhall, first of all, um, there's two big things going on that are not themselves to do with Brexit, but are not made any better by Brexit. First of all, Vox, Vauxhall's a bit like Spinal Tap. It's playing to a more select audience these days. Um, overall sales of cars in Britain fell by 5.7% last year. Sales of Vauxhalls fell by more than 22%. The company's spin is, though, well, you know, we're trying to cut our losses rather than focus on market share. But the point is, they're doing that because the, the cars are just not selling the way they used to. So the new job owners are uh, obviously cutting jobs, going down to one shift a day, putting a big question mark over the future of the factory. Brexit makes this worse uh, because at the moment, most of the, most of the cars we make in Britain are exported. Most of the cars that we buy and drive ourselves are imported. That's because we're part of this huge, uh, united, uh, very open European market with you know, 500 million plus people in it. Uh, once we're no longer part of that integrated market, PSA, the new owners, might be, uh, start regarding the British market in isolation. So why continue to build cars that aren't selling very well in a small market where overall sales are also weak? Second thing is we've had years of having too many car factories across Europe. Now something's being done about it. Uh, rationalisation. The biggest part of that so far is General Motors, which has lost billions of dollars over the years on Vauxhall and its German counterpart, Opel, um, have now sold them to the owners of Peugeot and Citroën. The obvious thing to do now is say, right, we've got all these different models, all these different factories, how can we rationalise them? And the, the, Vox, the uh, Vauxhall and Opel Astra, the, car, the, the estate version that's built at Ellesmere Port, is a rival to one of Peugeot's models. It's a sort of rival to one of the Citroën models. And, therefore, and you've also got a factory in Glavitsi in Poland, which also makes Astras. So if you're looking to rationalise, that makes Ellesmere Port look pretty, pretty vulnerable. But overall, manufacturing is is looking all right at the moment. Uh, well, exactly. Uh, manufacturing, in fact, according to the latest figures, is uh, output in Britain is close to its all-time high. Uh, there's this 
there's this myth that manufacturing has declined in Britain. It actually hasn't. Um, you know, there are lots of high-profile manufacturing, the sort of stuff that gets in the headlines, that has strikes and stuff, has declined. But overall output never really did decline. It didn't decline during Margaret Thatcher's era. It actually, when she, when she was, uh, we, when we waved her a fond farewell in 1990, actually manufacturing <laughs> well, output. You waved her a fond farewell. <laughs> <laughs> I think lots of people waved her a fond farewell, including Julian Cope at the time. I remember. Uh, but uh, manufacturing output was actually higher than in 1979. There was a big dip in the middle, but it, it recovered again. It's just that we, we tend to focus on this 19th century sort of manufacturing fetch. It's the idea that the manufacturing process, and particularly the final assembly process, is where the value is created and where the jobs are created. Neither of those are true anymore. Uh, look at Apple. You know, it doesn't make the iPhone. It makes all the money out of the iPhone because it does the design, the marketing. It has all the money off the services that go with an iPhone, the, the iTunes and so on, all the advertising and so on. But the actually the assembly is just done by some factory in China which is on tiny much tinier margins and but we still obsess about having um, a car factory uh, assembly factory as a sort of symbol of national virility yes. it's just a, it's just a delusion uh, rather like some of the delusions around brexit actually it's such an especially pertinent example isn't it as as a sort of car goes from being you know a lump of manufacturing around some tech into basically a tech product with a manufacturing shell around it and as yep. that becomes more and more the case those kind of mm. aspects become more and more important um, manufacturing is doing well which is which should be to be expected of course because Stur- went down in yep. value. We've got a very, very strong global economy. China's performing well. The US is performing very, very well indeed. And that means, you know, that you should have pretty strong exports of manufacturing. When you look at construction, which is obviously much more domestic, it is a very, very different story indeed, especially when you look at private sector commercial construction, which looks very bad. And that gives you some indication of the sort of chasm between domestic confidence in Brexit and the kind of confidence we could have around our exports when the pound has been devalued. Even then, exports still haven't performed as well as we expected them to, given the scale of the the devaluation. But it would be terribly strange if manufacturing didn't reflect that in some way. And we do only assemble cars here and, you know, these component parts that are coming across borders. And this is why the customs union issue is so worrying for those sorts of sectors, uh, because we may not meet these EU uh, rules of country origin in the future. Um, So I think the whole the whole fact that we don't actually, you know, manufacture cars per se, we assemble them um, is 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 why it's of particular concern when we start talking about that stuff. And, And you're right on the on the wider economic stuff we should be doing much better than we are every other well-developed economy is doing much 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 better than the uk's is so yes we are sort of doing all right at the moment a bit boosted by a a cheaper pound, but you know, it's yeah, not okay. sustainable. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very important point, and it often gets overlooked. It, we should be looking not at where we are, where we should Who, be. And where and else likewise is. with Brexit and trade in general. Um, you know, there is actually nothing in the EU's rules to stop British manufacturers selling more in China, in India, in America, all around. Because let, let's face it, that's what German factories are doing. Mm. They're in the European Union. It's just that they are better at building the right product and yep. selling it to the right markets. There's not, we do not need to do Brexit to improve our, our export performance and therefore to manufacture more. And the week's big business story was the collapse of Carillion, which seems to be one of those few stories that uh, 
to our chagrin, does not have a Brexit angle. Oh, it does. Oh, so oh, does. Oh, it has. <laughs> well, I, I've, got, I've got two here. Go on, then. No, no, go on. Okay, I've got two. Let's see if the name is a difference. Well, first of all, Dennis McShane, the former Labour MP and creative expense claims artist, writing for the excellent Infax website, pointed out that if the government wasn't so tied up with Brexit, which, you know, by general agreement it is, it might have had a bit more capacity to supervise all of these contracts with Carillion that are now in trouble. Uh, also, uh, Jolyon Morm, the barrister, has pointed out that the 28,000 members of the Carillion pension scheme should be jolly grateful that the UK Pension Protection Fund will step in and support them because of an EU regulation which called for the to set up of pension protection funds. Yet again, as we said in the very first podcast, um, when you point out the details of so-called EU bureaucracy to people, they come out, people realise that these are sensible rules and they want to keep them. Do you, do you want your protection, uh, protection of your pension or don't you? Well, if there is a Brexit angle, Johnny and Moore would find it. Indeed. <laughs> and as a campaigner, uh, my view really is that I think the link is around the failings of neoliberal economics that created the conditions uh, that set us up for a leave vote. And I, I think that's clearly where we've got uh, a strong link. They themselves did actually say, I mean, you know, you can take this with as much of a truck full of salt as you want, but the company itself did say, look, it's all to do with Brexit, really. And as soon as Brexit happened, there was a drop-off in interest, drop-off in spending. That's not where government resources were going, and so this majorly damaged us. Again, you know, as many trucks of salt as you want, but, but they but It hasn't become that sort, of, uh, that sort of Brexit football that most issues do. That's like true. The, the yeah. initial framing of this. I mean, I, I mean, I wonder actually whether it's possible for anything to happen in the economy, which is in, not in some way either exactly. affected by or related to and Brexit, if, but didn't become that as, a, as an arguing point. And if you've got a billion pounds worth of debt on your balance sheet, even a tiny interest rate hike is going to have a cash flow impact, uh, even if you can recoup it through tax later on. Cool. The second story this week is a bit of a scoop, which the Sky News political editor... Faisal Islam and Ian Favourite spotted down in the details of the taxation cross-border trade bill. You know the one. Can we not call him an Ian Favourite? <laughs> you do. You said well, he was your, like, hero of 2017. Well, yeah, but it's a bit embarrassing now that it's part of his job description. We're like, oh, and Ian Favourite. <laughs> I was just saying that you like the guy. You think he does good work. I do, I do indeed. When Corbyn floated the idea of a customs union with Europe, unusually the Conservatives didn't attack him. And why? Perhaps because part of that bill creates the powers to fast-track a new customs union, even within the EU, without the need for new legislation. Ian, does this mean we could leave the EU on March 19th uh, next year and rejoin the customs union the next day. Well, we, I mean, we certainly won't be leaving any customs union on in March 2019 because there'll be at least a two-year transition unless everything really goes thoroughly takes over the deal. Whenever Brexit day is, it's, you know, pretty likely that there will be a jump into another customs union. There has to be another kind of customs union. It's actually true in this case. You can't stay in this customs union as it is properly done without really being an in-new member. So... When people like Keir Starmer put the emphasis on the word a uh, before the phrase customs union, what they're typically doing there is it could be completely interchangeable. It's just it would technically be a new one in the sense that you can't say you'd have to leave, you know, for an hour or whatever it was and then go back in. They like a, uh, don't they? It's like a single market. They love a. Uh, yeah. I'm looking forward to a uh, European Union. Yeah. <laughs> Not the European of, Union. Of Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> of Brexit. <laughs> There is a technicality, isn't there, that, um, if I'm remembering correctly, Turkey is in customs union with the European Union customs union, uh, which is 
the same as being in the customs union, except that I think that means that they have to accept any trade deals the EU does, but can't do can't get can't guarantee to get the advantages from the other side in the negotiating. So if the EU does a trade deal with Paraguay or something like that, they don't get access to the Paraguayan market. Yeah, it's hard to, you know, we talk about models like Norway and Calibre. It's hard to think of like a country that gets more fucked in its relationship with the EU than Turkey does. Really, like that that it was really intended to be this first step towards eventually joining. You know, back before Erdogan and before, you know, Euro- European nativism and all these other things made it basically impossible that we would ever consider such a thing. It was never intended to be somewhere that they would end up. I mean, for a start, that customs union membership of whatever it is doesn't include agriculture, which is absurd because tariffs on most things are down to almost nothing. You know, even on manufacturing, it's pretty low. Agriculture is where your tariffs are high. If you've got a customs union arrangement that doesn't include agriculture, it is just the most pointless thing. And it actually works against Turkey in, in many respects. You're right, those deals are done its market is opened up to other countries and then really turkey doesn't really get much penetration into theirs it doesn't really get any of that quid pro quo so it's a terror i mean no no one would ever suggest we wanted to end up like turkey staying in the customs union wouldn't be such a bad idea though and that Pfizer islam i mean really what he was pointing out was section 31 of the taxation bill which seems to give basically just sort of and i think it's affirmative instruments they're using a statutory instrument basically allows a minister just to quickly say we're in a customs union again now by the way no need for a vote we'll just we'll fast track that Bill Cash noted you're a skeptic, but not a complete idiot. Noticed this actually, and sort of started asking questions of Mel Stride, who's financial secretary to the Treasury. And it was very clearly said to him, "No, that is basically what it allows us to do, including the existing customs union with the EU." So all of that is clear. It doesn't necessarily mean the government is going to do it, and I think we'll we'll end up talking about this a bunch looking at the, what was signed up to in that first phase agreement on regulatory alignment and what that might mean, actually, to Britain. I think it is really about giving them the power to do it if they need to move very, very quickly as Brexit talks continue. And a customs union is fine for goods because it gets rid of tariffs and border checks, um, but it really does nothing at all on services. And of course, as much as our government fetishizes the automotive industry, um, we really are a service-led economy. And even the FTA with Canada um, doesn't really go very far on services. And we've seen financial services, I know it's a bit of a dirty word um, for, for many Remainers, but in particular saying it's unacceptable in the long term that the UK becomes a rule taker. Um, and they're arguing for these comprehensive trade agreements, allowing for this mutual mechanism of future divergence, blah, 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 all horrible uh, financial <laughs> services words. But Barnier has pretty much ruled out even that in the last few days. It would. I mean, I, I, it's really hard to imagine us leaving the single market and staying in the customs. It's such a weird arrangement that you would that you would have, really. And then, you know, at the end of it, you still wouldn't be able to sign any future trade deals and blah, blah, blah. But it is interesting. You know, Labour are quite clearly thinking about it as part of the puzzle. The Tories clearly haven't really ruled it out, becoming warmer on it. There's, there's evidently some kind of change going on there. Finally, a little light Kremlinology regarding Theresa May's reshuffle and the Tories' internal psychology. One little note of disappointment in Mrs May's homeopathic reshuffle with Suella Fernandez, who has been made a junior minister at Dexune. She's the chair of the rapidly europhobic European Research Group, and she was the MP who coordinated a letter from Tory MPs which aimed to block any transition arrangements because they meant we'd be, quote, in the EU by stealth. She's a big fan of No Deal, and in many of her positions on Europe, she's flatly opposed to Theresa May. Ian, tell us about her. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, especially this European Research Group link is interesting. She's the former chair of this group. And for those that don't know, it basically functions sort of as a party within a party. It's a hard Brexit caucus, really. I mean, it, it, to the point of, you'd say, pushing for no deal, certainly it holds a very firm line on not in the single market, 
not in the customs union. His name sounds so harmless and benign. It like does. Perhaps momentum. they've made yeah. some kind of mistake there. Yes, indeed. By choosing such a harmless name. I, I, w- I would, you know, you're quite entitled to at least go sort of waist deep in conspiracy think, think around these guys, really. Because, I mean, you know, they have a very secretive WhatsApp group. It's basically considered that that, is, I know, that this is so how, this is how consp- very <laughs> It's not secretive, it's just no one else wants to join us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so anyway, I mean, they have it. It's, it's thought that basically they do have a sort of a kind of a whip that they function as an internal party whip. If, if anyone steps out of line, they go for them. They keep a pretty regimented line on how they approach these things. When we come in and, and some sort of uh, concession has been made and we go, why aren't the Brexit guys losing their minds? It's mostly because somewhere we presume that is the line that's coming in from these guys. Now, she has gone off to join DexEU. The former chair, Steve Baker, has gone off to join DexEU. These two guys, the new ones, fucking Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, you, you would, would you believe it? Um, these guys are now just embedded in the department. Now, of course, for a while, Baker was going to be the no-deal minister until Theresa May realised that she had no executive power to move anyone at all, and so everyone had to stay exactly where they are. But still, you've got two chairs now moving from that group, very, very well-funded group, predominantly, it seems, by the way, through MPs using their expenses to kick back against the money that they donate to the group. So, by the way, all of this stuff is basically taxpayer-funded. We now have two of them embedded in DexEU, which raises a lot of questions when we start saying, again, what does regulatory alignment mean in that first phase deal that British government has signed up to? Who is going to be the person in the department saying, well, actually, that can't mean what it seems to mean on a piece of paper? It seems to me that it will be her and it will be Baker. But, 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 but isn't DexEU basically just there for show? Isn't Downing Street really calling all the shots? Aren't they going to just spend their whole days sending memos to each other? <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't know if it's just there for show. I think stuff goes on. I know that increasingly, David Davis has talked about as this sort of Bonhomie mask on on the face of somebody else. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if that one holds anymore. I don't know if it's just there for show. I mean, there is stuff that is going on there. At, at the moment, it's very, very hard to tell where the centre of power lies. But I think because there is no centre of power in government, there's just no one with enough authority and enough connections in order to really make decisions that have any lasting effect. And is she uh, is she talented? Is she impressive? Or is it just that her views? fit because it seems like at the moment if your views fit you're gonna get the, yeah. the sort of plum jobs at the moment because no, no, she's a she's a moron and um, you could see i mean if you go out there's some clips of her i would advise you to look at it from six months ago on uh, question time uh when people start first started talking about the 50 billion eu divorce bill and she says oh you know don't worry about that that's just more project fear project fear and so really she's just the same old brexiter yeah they're six months behind reality and they're still calling it project fear she's not particularly impressive in herself she's exactly what you say she's got the right politics at the right time and that's why she's been installed and that politics is that she voted in favor of repealing the human rights act against <laughs> plans to save the steel industry for reducing corporation tax for phasing out secure tenancies against measures to climate change i'm going to leave it to listeners to decide whether their little whatsapp group is actually called very stable geniuses i think it should be called (laughs) i think it should be called these fucking people (laughs) now we have a special message for nigel farage nigel please stop making big announcements immediately after we've recorded an episode of romaniacs it's awkward and embarrassing Last week, no sooner had we packed away the microphones than the television personality and seven-times-failed parliamentary candidate announced that he was suddenly quite into the idea of a second referendum, or rather he now thinks another vote is increasingly likely if Parliament rejects whatever deal May comes up with, and he thinks Leavers need to be ready to fight again to silence Remainers for a generation. He later clarified his remarks, obviously, saying that a second referendum was the last thing he wanted, but that the Leave side had to be ready for one. 
He admitted to the Observer that Brexiters were losing the argument on Brexit due to Remain campaigners making all the running. I think he means us. This produced a febrile week in which prominent Remainers, including friend of Romaniac Andrew Adonis, effectively said, bring it on. UKIP's star-crossed lover, Henry Bolton, claimed that Farage misspoke and didn't really want another referendum. He's an expert on misspeaking this week. <laughs> the Sun reported that Boris Johnson had admitted to friends that he'd rather stay in the EU than endure a soft Brexit. And Jeremy Corbyn insisted that Labour wouldn't support another vote no matter what, while reiterating his favourite untruth that the single market is dependent on membership of the European Union. Let's start with Nige. Naomi, why has he suddenly put this on the table? Well, he started a bit of a trend because since then we've had Donald Tusk appealing to uh, <laughs> Theresa May for a second referendum using that sort of hackneyed phrase, uh, democracy ceases to be democracy if it can't change its name. And then we've had Juncker weighed in as well. Um, but back to Farage, I find it pretty hard to believe that he would make such a remark um, and for it to be ill-considered. He's not somebody that tends to shoot from the hip. He's quite a calculated political operator. And I've listened back to it a few times and it wasn't misspeaking. He'd, he'd set out to say that. So I'd be very surprised, very, very surprised if both sides weren't continuing to be doing private polling uh, throughout um, all of the, the trade negotiations. So is he just trolling us? Perhaps. Um, is he anxious um, that if he is seen to oppose the second referendum, that will make him look bad because of all of his constant support for referenda and always talking them up, potentially? Or what's most likely is that they're just doing a lot of scenario planning uh, and they are pretty confident that they will not win the vote in the Commons on the meaningful vote stuff um, later this year, sort of October, November time. I think we're expecting that. Um, so perhaps he, 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 he's now thinking that the only way he's going to get the kind of Brexit he wants is to go back to the people for it. Um, he'll have seen Justine Greening go and sit next to Dominic Grieve the first day uh, after uh, she left the Cabinet. Um, and, and perhaps he just thinks he can't rely on Parliament to deliver it. And uh, I guess we'll find out in 2018. And UKIP said that they were on their Twitter account that their members were ready for war. Oh, good. Well, they're, they're responsible with their language. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, good for them. I have a question. So the, so the YouGov's uh, poll on whether people want a second referendum says uh, 36% now say we should have one, up from 32% in October. 43% say we shouldn't have mm. a second referendum. That's down. And the don't knows are about the same, 21%. The only... Obviously, as Naomi was pointing out, a lot of people will be doing private polling, but just because it's private polling, I don't think it makes it any better. Um, and also, you're asking people, what's your view on a second referendum that you don't really think is going to happen, that uh, nobody is really saying will happen? And it's that very, you don't know what the question is again, going to be. You don't know what the question is going to be in the conditions. I think it'd be, it requires heroic um, assumptions to think there's anything that such polling can tell us, I guess, yeah? And I, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I certainly know that the, the, the internal polling that Remain guys have done on how you would approach things would mostly indicate that if you say, would you like a second referendum, it is completely toxic. And people Not hate another the, you know, one. The, exactly, all of that. And Remainers seem to hate it really rather a lot and leave us hated, obviously, considerably more than that. If you say, would you like a referendum on the final terms, that is a very different question and that's treated in a very, very different way. 
Um, there was a polling put out actually by uh, Lord Ashcroft today. Lord Ashcroft uh, turning into kind of a fucking punchline because of his, you know, he's putting up polls on Twitter and then talking about it and you just think like, what are you doing, mate? You're actually like a, a pollster, for God's sake. Don't mm. start putting surveys up on Twitter. Nevertheless, the results today I thought were very, very interesting. There's about four options, but the straight one, do you want a second referendum on Brexit, had 38% were for it and 51% were against it. All of that changes and becomes much tighter if you start talking about, do you want to vote on the final terms? But the thing is, a vote on the final terms is not the same thing either way. A vote on the final terms where a no means it's no deal and we leave anyway is very, very different to a vote on the final terms and it means that we stay. And the results of that were weird. So if it's you're voting on the final terms and a no means no deal and we leave anyway, it's 39 pro versus 31 anti. That was the only scenario in which there was overall public support for holding a referendum. However, a second referendum on the final terms where you stay in if you vote against the deal was 40% pro and 42% against. Now, that is a huge change from where we were a year ago. And I think the polling on the second referendum, when it's spoken about as the final terms, actually has been shifting our way rather a lot. If you look at some of the stuff that's been coming out, the Salvation poll for the Mail on Sunday in December, much more sympathetic. Um, the BMG one for left foot forward, much mm. more sympathetic. And that was on, if there's no deal, would you like a second referendum on being able to do this stuff? So actually, I, I think that we can get something from it. I also think, because I'm naturally of an optimistic disposition, but also because the polling suggests it, mm. that if there was a second referendum, I think that it's very, very winnable. Yeah. Well, the first, the, the, the first way of phrasing it, of course, is, is just nonsense, because it, it, you get this argument from a <clears throat> great thinker like Piers Morgan, where it's just like... <laughs> It's like you're gonna. It's like a rerun. You go. Oh, what we're we gonna do? Best of three. Hmm. I mean, forgetting. There's know, already been one. There's already the been one, one in the seventies. <laughs> but you know, um, and it's like I, I, don't, I haven't seen anybody proposing that we just like forget the last one and do everybody well, talking about. Farage, so that is the interesting part. That of course his thing was not about on the final terms. His thing was we have another oh, yeah. Brexit referendum, and he knows that. I think they really would win very strongly. And he almost went into multiple choice away. answers. Ah. He was almost <laughs> suggesting that, you know. Oh, yeah, really? so, yeah okay. it sounds like a sort of press officer comes in and sort of shuts him up a bit halfway through that. Um, and that would, of course, require a change in the voting system and everything. Um, I think what's really interesting as well is around um, the the public perception of how the government is handling Brexit. And that's been getting worse and worse and worse. And what we need to do is to get voters to make that leap from this isn't just the Tories handling it very badly. It's they need to make that jump from but nobody could handle it well because Brexit is a dreadful, terrible idea. Yes. Well, or, or, or do you? Because, it, again, if it's if it if everything is focused on the final deal, it sort of doesn't matter whether it's sort of a priority or a posterior. I mean, the thing is, people are voting against that deal, and that is the only one that's on the table. If you look at the YouGov tracker, which has been showing strong leave support throughout from the, from the referendum itself all the way through to August. Suddenly in August, there's a change where the country flips, and actually you've got a pretty strong Remain lead. And that stayed there, and I think that's because we're talking about the stuff that she's coming back with from Brussels. Yeah. We're finally talking in quite concrete terms about where things are. We're going to pay this much. This is how this bit will work. We're talking about Ireland. We're talking about technicalities. And that, I think, fundamentally changes it. I, I, I'm gonna, can I just, I'm going to pour cold water over everything I just said now and say that I, what I don't get is I don't get the timetable. I don't see how, I don't see where, I don't see the, the, the practicalities of how you would hold it. Because the only way if it's going to be on a final deal is if you put an amendment down to the primary legislation that will go to Parliament, which contains the withdrawal deal from the EU. We know that's what David Davis has said he's going to do. They're going to put that forward. They also have this commitment that they're going to put this vote in front of Parliament before the European Parliament 
votes. So that sounds like it would give us about October, November time, six months before leaving. Very, very tight that you could do it. But that commitment isn't actually for the primary legislation. That commitment's actually for a motion before Parliament. And that you can't put amendments down on. So there isn't any mechanism there. The legislation would presumably be pushed back as far as you possibly can because you'd have got the support of Parliament on the motion. And therefore, the mechanism for how you legally hold it in time to do it before Brexit happens seems very, very mysterious to me. The practicalities of it don't seem to work in my head. I think that there would be public support for it, and I think that'll grow over the year. I think it could be one if it was held. I just don't know how you get to the point where you're actually holding the bloody thing. What do you think of this theory that actually the, the levers who don't feel very comfortable with sort of victory and still prefer to see themselves as the sort of the insurgents against the elites, even when they are in, in control, well, allegedly in control, it's almost as if like, they, don't, they don't want this sort of responsibility or they, they seem very unhappy with sort of victory. And so there's a theory that almost Farage, for his own sort of purposes, and, you know, wants sort of Brexit to fail in some way. But that, I mean, that seems quite kind of, um, that seems quite a leap. To see that they're sabotaging, literally sabotaging something that he's been campaigning for years, basically to keep his TV appearances up. Let's face it, he's never fucking off the telly. So I don't Mm. really know how much more prominent he could be. Mm. Like I said, they are carrying, they're still talking like insurgents anyway. Leave.eu are still talking like some kind of like irate far right cell. So I don't. I don't follow that theory at all. Well, it, it is comfortable to be in opposition. I, I'm sure there are lots in a general election. There are lots of MPs who go into the election talking, we're going to win, we're going to win, but hoping actually it'd be quite nice to have a, an opposition um, position maybe in the shadow cabinet and to be able to sit there and criticise and say, I wouldn't have done it this way. The government's doing everything all wrong. And if, if, you're, if you're Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage now, you must be thinking, well, we're not going to get the Brexit that we promised because we, we knew it was, it was impossible anyway. So wouldn't it be better to see the whole thing called off and sit there and say, oh, you see, if they'd done Brexit properly our way, it would be different, you know. And yeah. mm. But it's a, it's a comfortable opposition place to be in. I, I think that is quite a kind analysis. And you are a very kind person. <laughs> uh, and I'm probably less kind when it comes to politicians. Um, I, I think that what we've seen in 2016 and 2017 and now into 2018 is this culture of the really angry winner. Uh, and you're seeing it in America with Trump and you're seeing it with these, you know, far right Tories and UKIPers. And they, they just are perpetually in this fifth gear of anger. And it's weird. And I don't want them to be running the country and leading us crashing out of the EU. I don't. He, he, you're right. It, it, it sort of feels like I don't really want to get tangled up in the emotional and psychological needs of Nigel Farage. I do know that I thought... I, I also, by the way, also don't think that he's some kind of strategic... I mean, you, like you say, he's run for Parliament seven times and he's fucked it up every single time. You know, I mean, he, you know, he is not this great scheming mastermind. I, I just don't, I don't see that. But I do think it's useful that he said it because it just detoxifies mm. the idea. You can always just get to point out, well, it can't be that off the scale. I mean, your own guy, Nigel Farage, has been saying it the whole time. So I, thought, I was happy that he said it. It seems like it has to be a sort of own guy. It has to help us. Whatever his thinking behind it is, yeah, just the fact that he's kind of the the Overton window, or whatever is. If you've got Nigel Farage going, maybe a second <laughs> referendum. You're like, all right. Indeed, he has stretched that window to full capacity. <laughs> um, and what about Boris Johnson, uh, who's apparently told friends that he thinks May will cave and we'll have a Brexit so soft there's no point leaving, and I'm sure to his horror. Those friends then told the press. So now, <laughs> so now it's out there with red faces all round for Bozza. Um, but then he's also doubling down on the infamous bus lie 
uh, and saying that £350 million was, in fact, too low a figure. Um, and people are suggesting that it actually doesn't matter if it's a lie because even just bringing it back to the cost of EU membership is a good thing. I so just, I don't really know what's going... If we're going to get into his... If we're going to psychoanalyse somebody else, what's, what's he up to? Don't you find that there's like a set of people out there who just cannot analyse any event with, outside of the prism of liberals slash Remainers are getting a spanking? Because it just doesn't... You know, because it, it just doesn't seem to me that that's what's happening. And yet that's the only capacity they have of looking at each current event. If he's talking about what is considered by the general public to be the big lie of the campaign, I just do not see that that is damaging towards Remainers in any way, shape or form. His movements are definitely interesting. And again, the third time I've mentioned in this, but it is, to me, the, the most important thing that is happening right now. It all comes down to that first phase agreement, that phrase, full regulatory alignment on, the, on Section 49, which is the bid on the Irish border. What the fuck does it mean? Because if it means mutual recognition, as they're all saying in Westminster, it doesn't mean anything. But that would suggest that the EU is going to throw Ireland to the wolves and all that damage, which I don't think is credible. If it means what it seems to mean, which is that basically you're going to sign up to the single market and the customs union, the Brexiters are going to have a shit fit to, to rival all possible historical shit fits. So that part, that debate, that internal debate, seems to me what I presume what Boris Johnson is talking about when he starts putting this stuff out there, when he starts seeing shifting around, when we see those additions to the taxation bill and the customs mm-hmm. union. That is where everything is right now. And that kind of question, I think, will prob- I don't think they can roll that fudge over past March 2019. I think that question has to get decided this summer. That's when the climax of this whole thing. And what about his personal ambitions? You know, if the devil came to Boris Johnson <laughs> again <laughs> and said that he could be prime minister... <laughs> If uh, Brexit was Brexit was just dead, well, would would he say yes, please? I mean, if we know anything about Boris, it's that he is a completely self-centred careerist, and here he is trying to make hay out of an NHS winter crisis. You know, I'll be the saviour because I'll make sure it gets four hundred million a week or whatever, while having a right old pop at May at the same time. Um, you know, let's forget that he also voted for a £40 billion uh, Brexit fee. Um, he is utterly shameless. But were he to somehow ensure that we remained, I think his political ambitions would be toast. Um, he would be disliked by both Leavers and Remainers. And um, that sounds almost a bit too ideal to me. <laughs> <laughs> so just quickly on Jeremy Corbyn, Andrew Adonis was confident last week about Jeremy's long game. But is it time to get off the fence now and support this final say referendum or is his kind of is his plan that the sort of government will collapse and then Labour can reject Brexit under representative democracy and that'll work I I thought Adonis you know was extremely caustic and wonderful guest and probably a little bit marginally overconfident on this issue of of how likely it is that Labour would go for a second referendum but you can't rule it out I mean you have Labour front bencher after Labour front bencher is constantly like we're not supporting a second referendum now, <laughs> which is always this yeah. sort of thing, like, well, if I really feel like something could be read into that. And yet, Starmer, okay, Starmer, the Shadow Brexit Secretary, seemed to thoroughly discourage that in a meeting with the Labour Parliamentary Party the other day. Seemed to really say, stop trying to rub out Brexit, we're trying to go for it. However, you look at some of those comments that he made, again, he sort of he started saying to them, look, I've told you before, we say you get all of the same benefits of the single market and the customs union, or we're not going to support it. Now, he, he has said this for a long time, to be fair to him. And he says, this is the thing to tell your constituents. This is the thing to tell your friends. I think, like, what deal are they going to bring back that will possibly involve mm-hmm. that, that criteria? Mm-hmm. And it seems 
a pretty heavy wink to me that they're going to vote against the deal. Because, of course, one of the great mysteries is what does Labour do with that bill or that motion, whatever it looks like. If it comes back, if they vote for it, they're supporting the whole government's work for the last two years, which is an unusual thing for an opposition to do. If they vote against it, they cause all this chaos. And that seemed to me a pretty heavy indication they would vote against it, at least not sure what it means for a second referendum. Maybe that explains, uh, if you read between the lines, Emily Thornbury's comments. She was asked about it and she said, well, look, you know, we're we're not in favour of a referendum. But of course, if 90% of the public were demanding one, obviously, Mm. as a Democrat, that puts you under a lot of pressure. So you can imagine a scenario in which we're building up towards the deal um, it suits the Labour leadership to say, this isn't good enough. This isn't good enough. We're not getting full access to the single market, the customs union. We're not getting this. We're not getting that. So we're, 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 uh, the, the, the focus of Labour campaigning becomes the deal is a bad deal. The deal is a bad deal. And they hope then to affect public, public opinion. And lo and behold, you've got the 90%, including Conservative well, Remainers, saying let's have another referendum. But 90% seems a little high. Well, no, she did, obviously doesn't mean literally 90%. Yeah, yeah. If, it was, if it were 74%, I think that would do. You know, um, it, What she means is a clear majority of the public in favour of a referendum. Likewise, Ruth Davidson uh, saying she didn't want a second referendum because she thinks referendums are a bad idea. That, if you listen very carefully, doesn't sound like let's not have a referendum. It's, it just, it's just saying the first bit. It's saying mm. we don't like referendums. They're a stupid mm. idea, which is she's right about, of course. Um, it doesn't mean that she would be against a second referendum, I don't think, if one were in prospect. Back, back to Corbyn, I think Remainers just must get much better at selling the European Union to him and and the whole anti-Brexit agenda. This is somebody who represents a wing of a party that has waited decades and decades to get control and and, and get power. And if he inherits the earth just after we've crashed out, it's going to put back that brand of socialism a century again because the economic turmoil will all be blamed on Corbynism rather than Brexit. And so, you know, my pitch to him is that you've got this right-wing nuttery in America, you've got China in ascendancy on the other side of the planet. And in the middle, you've got this enormous trading block that is absolutely crying out for leadership at the moment. And that he could be the sort of person that would provide that leadership, being a bastion of workers' rights, cooperatives, mutualism, industrial democracy, uh, all, the, all the sorts of things that I think you know he, he is very passionate about. And that's how we need to go about selling uh, pro-Europeanism to him. And so remain as we do have some power, there is stuff you can do. And I think we need to sort of start making this kind of a pitch to him. And finally, if there is a second referendum, we've got, quite apart from the fact of, of, of some you know, regretful leave voters changing sides, we've got an actuarial churn, whatever you call it, with, <laughs> with, with old people dying and more people getting to 18. Hmm. And, of course, a lot of those voters who did not turn out, the pro-Remain people who did not turn out last time, would turn out. So it seems like there's these really strong, obvious advantages. Money on the table would Remain win. Oh, definitely. I'd put my money on that. I mean, I think the bigger thing about that really is that people have now had two years of seeing what a Brexit vote entails, which is an awful lot of technical jargon dominating their TV and radio stations for the whole time. And that is very, very different to the everyone gets their own unicorn referendum campaign that we had before of projecting everyone's hopes and aspirations, whether, you know, they're in post-industrial towns in the north or whether they're in the golf clubs in the shires in the south. Everyone having that shared fantasy of completely mutually incompatible economic demands. And when that's turned into the reality that it has been for the last two years, Brexit becomes something really quite tedious rather than something revolutionary. What if you phrase it as, would you like 
us to stay in the European Union, you never have to talk about this again? Or would, <laughs> or would you like to continue leaving the Union and grind on for several more years with this on the news every fucking day? It'll be a landslide. Until you scream. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's fair wording, I think we should. it would be a landslide. <laughs> I don't know what Lord Ashcroft will make of that wording, but, but I like Slip it. Slip a few quid to the Electoral Commission <laughs> and we'll get away with it. <laughs> and that's the end of our show for this week. Before we go... To give the show a bit of balance and to honour Jacob Rees-Mogg, the new chair of the European Research Group, we're going to work out our Tory names. You might have seen this on social media. You take the first name of one grandparent and the name of the road you grew up on and you hyphenate it with the name of your first headmaster or mistress. Mine is Wilfred Lammerby Anthony. He's a veteran <laughs> Home Counties MP who would like to bring back hunting, compulsory Latin lessons and the old Robinson's marmalade mascot. <laughs> <laughs> Naomi, what's yours? Ina Hawthorne Spring, which sounds quite lower oh, middle wow. class to me, I think. That sounds nice. <laughs> she sounds quite likeable. She might be one of those kind of Romani rebel types. Yeah. She wrote lovely novels about nurses. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ian? Asusena Chilbolton Kefford. She's wow. very strange. <laughs> that doesn't matter. Can you run that one by as a game? Well, Asusena was, is the name of my, is the name of, well, Abuelita, but, you know, my grandmother, and, and, then Alcho Bolton and I grew up in, and Kefford, Mr. Kefford, is the headmaster. And Would this be the Tory MP most likely to have to keep spelling his name over the phone? <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, indeed. Yeah, that would be a bit of a struggle for him and, and also his, his ethnic upbringing. But nevertheless, nothing that I haven't dealt with myself. OK, Peter? my turn. No, wait, actually, let's see. My high Tory name comes out as Sir William Netherly Skidmore, which is rather posh, isn't it? It makes well, Jacob you Smoke sound sir, to yeah, it. Oh, which, okay. I mean, no-one instructed yeah. you to do that. Uh, no, well, the, the thing is that my Sir William um, is a complete imposter. He's actually the son of a butcher who went to a state school in Widnes, but who dresses in tweed oh, and an pretends to be Tory. exactly part of the landed gentry, yes. This yeah. is all part of research for a novella that Peter will be writing. It's high Tory alter ego. We'll be back next week. Remember, the first Romaniacs Live is at the Phoenix Cavendish Square, London, on Thursday, the 22nd of February. If you enjoy this episode of Romaniacs, you might want to try some of our past shows with highly entertaining guests, including Nick Cohen, Gina Miller, Suzanne Moore and Nick Clegg. There's links to our archive at Romaniacs.com. For this week's Europhone sign-off, we have another rock and roll Romaniac. It's Perida Abgwyneth, who plays guitar for drum and bass band Pendulum, with a bit of Welsh. My Liam Fox will rech potting jam. And here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster from Corner Shop, available now on all download stores and Spotify, and the traditional roll call of Patreon supporters. See you next week. And it's thanks from me to Paul Weatherilt, Tim Cobbett, David Clark, David Sheriff of Brexitus the Musical Fame, thanks again for the Christmas carols, David, and Chris Eason. Many thanks to Daniel Jacobs, Mimba Shirmian, Tom Baymeyer, Lars Clartvitter, and Sean Jones. It's hello and thanks from me to Chris Jones, Helen Micklewright, Andrew Sharp, Morwen Taylor and Pete Smith. And thanks for me to Felicity Thompson, Eliza Wheaton, Tom Blakeman, Jerry Gunnigan and Gail Irving. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt, Peter Collins and Naomi Smith. The producers were Andrew Harrison and Matt Hall. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.